Well, good morning. I hope that all of you are doing well, and my hope and prayer for this entire time together is just to be mindful of uh, the promise to us in Scripture that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, Sometimes when we wade into the waters of these conversations, um, typically three different things kind of happen. Uh, One is that we can leave feeling a bit condemned, uh, deflated, and maybe beat up. And uh, I really hope that that's not the case. Sometimes, if you're like me, I can get defensive. And more, it's more of kind of a pushback and saying, I kind of got my mind around these things and I don't really need to hear a lot about this or this doesn't really deal with me. But the third thing, is, and I, and I, I urged us with this uh, last night as I just asked you in your own prayer life, is, is to really invite the Holy Spirit to arouse and create in us a spirit of conviction. Uh, conviction is a good thing. Uh, It's the Holy Spirit through the Word and through our time together initiating us uh, in in the process of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus, of becoming more of the people individually and collectively that He desires us to be. And so I hope that that's really our takeaway from this. And as I said, uh, I've had the privilege and the opportunity to partake in different conferences and to speak on this topic. But the most important thing that will happen is really what happens probably around 8 o'clock tonight when we're done And what do we do with this? Um, I think we would be remiss if we don't also say, Lord, is there an action step that I can take from this, even if it's just a baby step forward, uh, engaging in some more study, some more conversation, uh, pursuing a relationship that maybe you've been thinking of pursuing and allowing the Lord to take you a little bit further than maybe you find yourself right now. And again, I am not an expert on this. I don't have a panacea for us today to say, hey, this is how we resolve this issue. We talked last night about this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 is it's sin. We have a sin problem in culture. We have a sin problem with one another and that there is a barrier between us and all of our relationships, whether it's our marriages, whether it's our parenting, uh, whether it is uh, within our own extended family. Uh, There are gender conflicts and there is also racial conflict and tension. And some of that is not going to go away until Jesus comes back. And that's not a defeatist thing. But we also need to understand that we're going to continue to contend with this until Christ comes back and eradicates us from the very power and presence of sin once and for all. Amen? That's the day that we're all clamoring for and looking forward to. But in the meanwhile, we have a lot of work to do. And uh, last night, as uh, Pastor Jason just said, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we did talk about one of our identities is that you and I, if we are in Christ, is we are ambassadors of reconciliation. It's an identity, and from that, we need to be mindful that we represent the values, the message, and really the the role of heavenly dominion here on earth. God has outsourced his message to his people. It's a really precarious and precious thing that we carry. And we also need to be mindful that our primary allegiance is not to the place of our geography. It's not to our nationalism. I said last night, I love the United States, uh, born and raised here. I think it's the greatest country in the world, but it's got sin, it's got limitations. And before even I, I get into my nationalism or my patriotism or whatever we want to call it, first and foremost, I am an ambassador of the Son of God. And so are you. And that should really shape our ideology, our theology, and even our nationalism should be filtered and shaken through all of that. So my hope today is to transition us a little bit into looking what is a healthy body. Uh, What does a healthy body of Christ look like? This is for faith Presbyterian, but also for the church global, for just us as the the church universal throughout uh, all of creation. And so I want to look at uh, 1 Corinthians today, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 16 uh, through 21, I believe. No, I'm sorry, 12 through 26, 12 through 26. 
And I want to remind us, as I said last night, that um, uh, many of you guys, or some of you know my father, Fran Shaka, he's actually here this morning, great Bible teacher, but he, he's always said, if you want to get a good glimpse of the American church, read 1 Corinthians and read the book of Jeremiah. Uh, both of those books are a good snapshot of, uh, of kind of where we are even in, in the American church today. And as I said uh, last night, uh, the Corinthian church was kind of a hot mess. Um, it was very ethnically diverse. It was religiously diverse. Uh, it was socioeconomically diverse. A lot of trade and different things were coming through this particular city. And in the midst of all of that, this young church was trying to kind of find their way. And there was a ton of disputes and disunity and things going on that Paul was addressing in a myriad of different ways. And so here in chapter 12, he's really talking about spiritual gifts. There was even conflict about which gifts were superior and which ones were the right ones to have. And, but sandwiched in the middle of this text, he kind of broadens it away from spiritual giftedness and begins to walk us through just this broad metaphor of the body of Christ. And so I'm going to read that text for us uh, in its entirety, and then by God's grace, I'll try to extract some stuff for us this morning. So in... Um, Starting in verse 12, Paul writes this. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. A great uh, pastor or preacher could take this text and devour it for months. It's so rich and it's so nuanced and so detailed. And so I'm only going to be able to pull out a few highlights from it that I do think are very instructive for this conversation that we're seeking to have. Right off the bat, Paul is juxtaposing a physical body with a spiritual body. And he's saying right off the bat in verses 12 through 14 that um, there is already diversity. And this is getting into, away from the spiritual gifts, into kind of this more ethnic and socioeconomic diversity. Right there in verse 13, he talks about Jews or Greeks. That is an ethnic or cultural classification. This is, this is talking in racial language. And then slave or free is a socioeconomic class. There were bond servants at that time. There were slaves and there were free men. All of these different people were doing life together within the Corinthian church. And Paul is saying there is diversity in this. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5 yesterday. Paul said, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. 
He said the new creation is now found in Christ. And if you look at verses 12 through 13, the word one, I believe, appears four different times. One body, one in spirit, and then again, one body, and then made to drink one in the spirit. Paul is drawing us into the commonality that we share through Christ Jesus, that we are a new creation found in the fact that he reconciled us basically through the same door, and that is the cross. And so despite the ethnic diversity, despite the socioeconomic diversity, we share a oneness in Christ. And I think all of us would say, know that, been there, that's pretty common knowledge, and I think that's great. And uh, Paul doesn't let us off the hook, though. He begins to start talking about the body and the physicality of it and comparing it again to our spiritual body by walking us through into verse 14. He says right here, he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many The language here is really kind of grappling with the absurdity of imagine if the entire body were just a hand. The body is multi-nuanced, multifaceted. The very digits of our pinky finger are incredibly intricate, and they're all inter-reliant on one another. And so he's saying here, his first point is that every single part of the body belongs to every other part. There is a sense of ownership. There's a sense of mutuality. There's a sense of interconnectedness that we actually belong to one another. And I'm not going to camp out on this particular point too long, but he he kind of shows the contrast that if a foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I just don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less of a part. And part of the tension that we've run into in, in, in global history, but also through American history, is that we have sometimes communicated throughout history certain parts of the body of Christ don't belong. We got into some kind of deeper waters in our panel discussion, for those of you who were here this morning, earlier, but there was a time in American history, and it's still, it's rare, but there was a time in American history where certain people, particularly our minority brothers and sisters, were told, you don't belong in this neighborhood. You don't belong in my school. You don't belong in my church. And they were literally shoved away and extracted and pushed away, even through legal systems, (laughs) where it was actually Jim Crow segregation. You're not allowed in this restaurant. So they were dealing with this in the Corinthian church, saying, look, every single part belongs. You can't say to someone, you don't belong here. You're not a part of this family. Any less than we would tell this left hand, you don't belong here, and I removed it. It's the same type of emphasis that Paul is trying to create through that particular analogy. And thankfully, we've moved past a lot of that, and again, the legalized aspect of it to a large degree has gone by the wayside, but we still deal with this tension. In verse 21, as we move further into the text, this is another brilliant point that Paul says. It says that I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And he begins to talk about the different facets of the body that some of them that are marginalized deserve the most protection, the most dignity. The ones that we ignore the most are the ones that should be most elevated. And so the second point is that first, first, every part belongs, but the second point is that every single part of this body is needed, is needed. I need the other. I need what's different from me. The hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. Again, if we think about that just in real basic terms of our own physical body, you couldn't say to anything, I don't need you. Now, we, we know for a fact you can live without your tonsils, You can live without your gallbladder, and there's a couple other, these vestigial organs, I think is what they're called, that you can live without, but you are a high-flourishing, high-functioning body when you have all of it working in tandem. 
And so I, I want to kind of step out into some, some water here today. And again, I hope that, that this makes sense. It, it, I want to kind of articulate what this might look like for us this morning in real life about saying every single part is needed. Is do we understand, you and I, speaking to myself, that the theological, spiritual, cultural, and historical contributions of our minority brothers and sisters uh, are needed to genuinely function and flourish as a body at a high level? Do we really believe that those things are actually needed? Paul is saying it. This is his word, not mine. He's saying, no, it is needed. You can't say to any part of the body that it's not needed. But again, let me kind of break that down for us. Um, You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us have heard of Frederick Douglass? Okay, Um, great. Many of you have. Uh, Frederick Douglass was an amazing... uh, African-American, born 1818, died in 1895, born in slavery, uh, was eventually able to escape and move up north. Uh, To my knowledge, I think he was our first ambassador to Haiti. Um, But he used to meet boys on the the docks of Baltimore, and he would trade white boys, and he would trade them bread. They were poor and famished. He'd trade them bread for uh, reading lessons, and they would take sticks of chalk, and they would teach him how to read and to write on fences and on the sidewalk. And that was the exchange that he made. Well, he ends up going on to be one of the most brilliant orators and speakers uh, that America has ever produced. But we also don't know necessarily that he was also an amazing theologian. (laughs) He produced an amazing commentary on the American church. And he lived during one of the worst times in American history to be an African-American. But when we think about that, one, and this is no judgment, but one, do we know that he's written those things? Secondly, have we read any of that literature And then thirdly, if we have, is it along our shelves alongside George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and others? And we'd say, hey, his theological insights and contributions as a learned man belong on the same shelves, and I need his insights to better understand the robust nature of Christianity in America. Some of the stuff that he wrote is is absolutely mind-blowing, how well it is constructed and his insights on the American church and his contention for unity and some of the disparities that he was saying, I highly recommend you pick up some of his literature and read it. Um, Jason Williams touched on it this morning as well uh, in our panel discussion, but even sometimes the Negro spirituals. uh, I absolutely love the hymns. Some of my favorite music is the hymns, but probably 99.9% of those were written by people that look a lot like me. (laughs) Uh, Do we understand that those hymns were birthed by our brothers and sisters in Christ from the past during a really awful time in history, and they express a certain, many of them express a certain level of lamentation and brokenness, and how do you walk with God through some of the worst times imaginable and still stay faithful to him in the midst of all of that? Do we know any of those hymns, any of those spirituals? And again, do we feel like we need them? Is there a sense of, you know what, if I could just read those even as poetry or learn to sing some of those, that might actually amplify my understanding of God, uh, to understand uh, a different perspective on experiencing him through trial that probably I will never even remotely experience. But are our lives even today shaped in any way, shape, or form by our contemporary minority brothers and sisters? Um, I listen pretty regularly to podcasts now by some pretty amazing African-American pastors from around the country, Dr. Eric Mason in Philadelphia, John Onwe- Dr. John Onwechekwa in Atlanta. Uh, have you heard of Carl and Karen Ellis? They live in Chattanooga. They're two amazing speakers and theologians and sociologists. And are we, are, are we seeing that we actually need their voices? We need their contributions to our conversation, to our understanding of God. Um, 
Andy Crouch, who is uh, the, I believe he's the executive editor for Christianity Today recently, I was listening to a podcast from him, and this is his take. Uh, I agree with him, but this is, this is really interesting. But he said, you know, when we talk about the image of God in Genesis chapter 1, that we are made in the image of God, he said God in all of his benevolence and omnipotence as he was creating humanity kind of outsourced his image-bearing qualities, not just to man, but also to woman, okay? That both of us image, the image God in unique ways, and so we're, we're kind of representatives of his image-bearing on earth through our gender. But then he went so far as to say it's also through cultural diversity as well, that within Adam and Eve was the gene pool for all of humanity, and as people came out over time in different shades and colors and all of those differences, that we are imaged Cultural, in cultural diversity as well. And so Andy said, if we really want a more robust view of God himself, we need that cultural diversity because each culture represents a different narrative, a different experience, and a different understanding even of God himself that actually makes our understanding of him as God that much more robust and powerful. I was blown away by that. I'd never heard that before, and I think he's right on point with that. But seeing that need and saying, to better understand God, I do need these other body parts. I need these other elbows and knees and hands in order to better understand this amazing God who's made me uh, the way that I am and, and made this world around me. So Paul walks us through, this is where I want to kind of, uh, this is the verse that I think is worth underlining, it's worth really kind of highlighting here. But at the end of verse 25, he says, that there may be no division in the body. He's aware that there is division within the body. Because of sin, we tend to divide and retribalize. He says, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Okay? And then he fleshes it out for us in verse 26. This is the kind of the highlight verse. Here. He says, if one member suffers, all members suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, I want to make this very, very practical. Have you ever slammed your finger in a door? Like I'm talking about those little brutal slams where you're literally hopping around and, and you're maybe even blurting out some stuff you can't repeat. You're just in agony, right? Um, think about the brilliance of the human body for just a moment. That finger gets smashed and all of a sudden the nervous system sends signals to your brain and says, ouch, something is wrong. And uh, everything that you're doing right at that moment stops. You could be in the middle of fixing your car. You could be in the middle of doing anything. And in that point of agony, everything freezes, and then it rallies to that place of pain. So if it's a finger, your other hand, which is in good shape, comforts that finger, it holds it, uh, and it does everything it can to console that damaged appendage with everything that it has, okay? Paul wants us to see that same type of interconnectedness within the body of Christ, that when a single member, when a single culture or community is in agony, the whole body suffers alongside of it. It's that plain and simple. And so, again, to kind of break this down and to help uh, flesh this out, my wife and I do live in, in Fairfield and, and our family, and we've lived there for a long time. And, and if, you, if you check out AL.com or the news, there's a lot of hard stuff going on in Fairfield right now. It's bad. It's, it's tough. And so please pray for our community. Pray for our new mayor. Um, but sometimes people will come up to me, and it's very well-meaning, it's a well-intended question, but they say, hey, Ben, what's going on in Fairfield? You know, what's going on these days down there? What's happening? I've heard this or that or this or that. And I think what they're asking me in that moment to do is to be a nerve ending, <laughs> to say, hey, let me fill in the blanks of what's going on over there. But, but implied and implicit in that, if we're not careful, is there's a disconnect. Imagine if your finger gets slammed in a door and the rest of your body said, what's going on down there? <laughs> 
you know, what's going on with that finger? What we'd be saying there is there's a nervous disconnect between this finger in my brain and the rest of my body where we are not attached. And, and Paul is saying, look, we've got to learn to co-suffer and co-lament the pain that's going on, whether it's global missions and the things that are going on around the world. But we have brothers and sisters just down the road 20 miles from now that are having a very, very tough time, and they are our family. They have something to offer us. They have something that we need. There's things going on around the world that are huge challenges, but there are brothers and sisters, whether they're being persecuted or whether they are imprisoned for their faith or whether they're starving. These are the types of things that should cause us to say, oh my God, we, help me to, to be connected to these people in a way that their suffering is my own. And then when there's victory, when there's celebration, we co-celebrate as well, just like the body does. But Paul is taking us into some very, very, very deep water with this, and it's something that we really, really need to wrestle with. And I've had to do this is that sometimes I feel so disconnected. Uh, and when there is lamentation, there's our areas of brokenness, I don't feel it. And that disturbs me. And I want the Holy Spirit to continue to arouse in my heart that sense of lamentation. And we may see this most powerfully at the tomb of Lazarus. Okay? Jesus shows up on the scene. Lazarus is dead. Mary and Martha are in agony. The whole community of Bethany is in agony. And Jesus knew Jesus knew that within 10 minutes of him showing up or 15 minutes of showing up, he was going to call that man out of the tomb and and do one of the greatest miracles that he ever did. But he took time to weep. He took time to sponge up the pain of those sweet women and their community, and it broke his heart. And that is mind-numbing compassion. Though he knew he was going to turn everyone's agony into laughter and tears of joy, he said, I'm going to sponge your pain. I'm not going to rationalize and try to pontificate here. I'm just going to sponge the pain of this neighborhood and of these grieving sisters and and pause for a moment and co-suffer with you. Wow. I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing to me that he took the time to do that. I think that's a great example of that. Bringing this to a to close to a conclusion here, guys, Dr. King and his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, if you've never read that, please read it. It's one of the most brilliant pieces of literature created in American history. It's, it's phenomenal. Um, but again, this was a long time ago. He's, he's in jail. But one of the things that he said that, I, that is very convicting to me in the letters as he was appealing to 10 white pastors just to help him with what he was trying to accomplish in Birmingham to get voting rights is he said, look, my greatest fear and my greatest frustration is not the Ku Klux Klan member and the staunch racist. He said it's the, he said, it's the white moderate. <laughs> he said it's the one who's doing nothing, who's been sidelined with indifference. And what he's honing in on right there is what, exactly what Paul is saying. Is he's saying, my greatest challenger is actually the, the broken nervous system that will not co-suffer and, and be willing to enter into a kind of a tough arena with me and put some skin in the game. He said, it's not the people that are opposing me, it's just the silent ones on the sidelines. And at some point in American history, some of us need to say, Lord, let that not be true of my generation. Uh, let that not be true of what we have in front of us right now, again, locally and globally. And it all, it all kind of um, wraps up with John chapter 17, verse 20. And this is where we get back to the gospel and we've come full circle from where we were last night. Jesus is in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is praying not only for his disciples, but he's praying for you and me in that moment. He, he saw us, I believe, maybe by face and knew what we were going to be going through and what we were going to be doing. But in verse 20, he says this. He says, Father, I pray that they may be one as we are one. And then he makes a sobering statement. He says, so that the world might believe that you sent me. That should kind of keep us up at night. (laughs) 
Jesus is saying, look, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're in perfect unity. We're on the same mission. We, we, we co-honor one another. We're co-connected. The Trinity is a dynamic uh, thing to study as far as relationships and perfect harmony. But he's saying, I want my people to be in that type of unity. And I'm going to pray that you help accomplish that so that the watching world may see that my messianic mission was legitimate. Wow. So that means to the degree that we are disunified, it scandalizes the gospel. God loves us so much and Jesus trusted us so much that he outsourced a tremendous responsibility to us. He's ascended into heaven. He's now doing his work in and through us in a broken world. And our heart's prayer should be, Lord, help me to interconnect. Help me to co-lament. Help me to pursue unity so that a world that is fumbling in the darkness for hope might see the power of the gospel and the legitimacy and the authority of Jesus Christ that he is who he said he was. May that be our prayer uh, as we go forward. Um, this evening, I'm excited just to hopefully share with you guys some practical action steps for those of you who want to go a little bit further uh, to re-engage in this issue. And again, uh, I'm so grateful for this time together. If I may, let me just close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy to us, Lord. You are a good, good Father. And um, Lord, I'm so excited that just a moment from now we get to take of, the, of communion of your Holy Supper, Lord, which is a reminder that through your broken body and through your blood that we have been reconciled uh, to you, O oh Father, by the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Lord, I just want to close by just, again, thanking Faith Presbyterian for this time. I do pray that any words that I've shared uh, this morning that were of value, they would stick and convict and move us. And if anything was of the flesh, that it would fall away. But Lord, help us to pursue unity and reconciliation with all that we have, God, by the grace and power of your Holy Spirit and your word. We love you, we praise you, and we pray that we could leave today encouraged and pursuing hope wherever we go. In Christ's name, amen.